0: Good day everyone, thank you for joining us and welcome to another episode of the GI Startup Podcast. Our guest today is Craig Strasnick, President and CEO at Commonwealth Diagnostics International. Craig received a bachelor's degree from Northeastern University in Business Administration, Management and Entrepreneurship. He founded Commonwealth Diagnostics International in 2015 following an acquisition of Commonwealth Laboratories Where he previously served as founder and COO. In 2021, Craig and Commonwealth Diagnostics International were named in the Forbes Next 1000. I'm really looking forward to hearing this conversation. As always, here's your host, Dr. Curdy.
1: Welcome everyone. Today I'll be talking to Craig about CDI or Commonwealth Diagnostics International. We'll talk about all their products, we'll talk about their strategic investments, the regulatory strategy and we'll discuss some details of their home-based breath testing among other really relevant subjects like digital health and the decentralization of medical testing it's going to be a great interview i hope you enjoy it all right craig thank you for joining us today i'm really excited to have a conversation how are you doing i'm doing
2: well Barbara. thank you for having me it's great to be here really appreciate you having me here
1: <laughs> great awesome all right, so tell me where where are you right now? What what location are you in?
2: I, I'm at headquarters. I'm I'm here in Salem, Mass. We're uh, we're here doing our thing. Our team is is grinding daily.
1: Awesome. What's the weather like over there? It's beautiful.
2: I I can't complain about the weather here in Boston. I'll tell you, my wife is from Arkansas, and it's about 108 degrees down there. It feels like you're wearing a wool blanket every time you step out the front door. So. 85 degrees with a little ocean breeze is nothing to complain about here in, in Salem, Massachusetts.
1: That's incredible. I'm incredibly jealous because here in San Antonio, it's scorching hot. I, <laughs> I haven't been able to get out of the house in in a while now. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So um, let's talk a little bit about you. Let's talk about um, Craig, the man behind The Voice. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. I uh, I am born and raised here uh, in a town called Swampscott, Massachusetts, on the North Shore of New England, about 20 minutes uh, north of Boston. Beautiful kind of seaside community. Uh, very lucky. I am the son of a practicing clinician, so my my father was a pharmacist and psychologist by training. Um, he started his own clinical diagnosis business in, in the mid-90s. So that's that's where I kind of got my initial interest on, on the business side of things. But um, I'm very much accustomed to kind of uh, being on call in the middle of the night or having to deal with an emergency case on, on the weekend type of thing. So um, that's where kind of my, my clinical upbringing uh, stems from. And I kind of hoped at the time and like to think now that uh, my mission is to kind of parlay the two, uh, my, my understanding of the clinical care cycle and all the different components and you know the necessary teamwork it takes to manage just one case, never mind a lot of them all at once. So um, trying to bring new technologies and products to market that can help bridge that divide between providers and, and patients has become my my intention and, and personal goal and, and mission. And we've tried to branch that out and, and let that be the origin and, and catalyst for everything we do now as a company.
1: I like that. I like that a lot. You know, that you, you have that connection with healthcare and, and you ended up in the healthcare industry. So that's massive. Um, so what got you into GI? So I think that, well, let's start with this question. Were you always in the GI space?
2: Uh, no. So I, I think it's probably, I, I, I like to kind of speak to the, the power of fives. So I think it makes it most simplistic. So I think going back to, to uh, well, I'm now I'm now 35 and going back to 2005 is when I, I first graduated high school. And I knew that I always wanted to do something in business, but again, kind of watching my father come up in in the clinical care cycle and what that all entails, um, I wanted to find something that wasn't just product-based but also service-based and meaningful to people. And and ultimately I I realized that was patient. So fast forward to 2010, I went to Northeastern here in Boston, Massachusetts, where my father is also an an alum. Um, And I I, uh, am very grateful to the education that I received at Northeastern because really right from the time that I graduated, high school, I was able to parlay both education and business. Northeastern offers a cooperative program. They work on, on trimesters during your undergraduate career. So what you're able to do is go to school for six months and work for six months. I took my uh, first position actually just as a general corporate marketing position at the TJX companies here in Framingham, Massachusetts. They're a Fortune 500 company. Most people know them as the the parent company to uh, TJ Maxx and Home Goods and, and Marshalls, uh, if you like, and I understood from very early age what it was like to kind of go to work nine to five and and report up into Wall Street and earning space and having a a very kind of myopic view of of earnings and and quarters and, and the like and um, I learned as much about what I didn't want to do in those early stages of my uh, college career as I did what I did want to do. And so I got to understand kind of business at a, at a big level, reporting it to Wall Street, if you will. And then I, my second co-op position when I was uh, studying business at Northeastern was working for my father's company, which he started in the mid-1990s. That was another clinical diagnostics business specializing in clinical toxicology and, and therapeutic drug monitoring. Um, and I was able to really see what Main Street looked like like two he started that business with two employees and 600 square feet of office space and ultimately was able to build it up into about 150 employees and 90,000 square foot of office space and operating in all 50 states and few countries abroad. And I was able to bring some new tests to market for that business. And this was all before I even had my my college degree. So um, I owe a lot to Northeastern, what they were able to provide for me. And coming out of that experience, it also crystallized for me exactly what I wanted to do. And it allowed for my father and I to embark on this new journey together and ultimately start our first business together in 2010, which was our legacy business Commonwealth laboratories. And we built that up into something I'm very proud of. And we're able to exit that business successfully in 2015, start Commonwealth Diagnostics International, fast forward to 2020 and enter COVID and everything that that meant to the world. And we're still here thriving and trying to provide a continuity of care to both patients and providers that's meaningful and impactful and keep adding services and products that will continue to do so for for many more years to come. And on that note if i look forward to 2025 i'm i'm only optimistic about what the future
1: looks like that's great that's a that's a wonderful story i love how i love how you partner up with with your father i mean that's that's a great story to hear and maybe maybe rare these days <laughs> but that's a really cool thing i think you know bringing those experiences together and and, and building something so great um so
2: and i would just say being able to learn from from his experiences and, and you know I, I always said he never really told me what to do, but he, he, he let me watch, which I was very grateful for.
1: Nice. So I, I'll ask you this. Did you um, consciously pick GI as an area that, that you wanted to um, expand into or found into? Or how did that come across?
2: Yeah. So we were, it's a great question I, I appreciate it because it's an interesting story. We were introduced to this this space through a, a former lab director of ours who I, I would want to give a shout out to Dr. Lou Traficanti. He passed away actually in, in 2015 after a battle with, with brain cancer and he was uh, a, a mentor of mine, a, a colleague of my father's and really a, a brother uh, of my dad's. And Um, He was someone whose network was as wide ranging as his intellect. He could speak to any topic in any category and he knew just as many people. And so he introduced us to a a really interesting gentleman who was operating kind of a a niche corner of the GI business offering uh, breath testing, but really more for, for allergen. Based categories. And we saw this as a, an unmet need. It was one where the service model was uh, a little bit fragmented in order to get access to these types of tests. You need to invest in equipment and the consumables on a monthly basis. And what we saw was the opportunity to provide a seamless integrated service model where patients could get clinical diagnostics for GI. Diseases at home, but not necessarily have to burden the provider in office with some of the tests that they've been accustomed to having to allocate staff and time and and resources to over an extended period. That became laborious, it became time consuming and it became very expensive. So um, there was certainly a business case there, but we, we very, very early on realized that there was a huge unmet need to get more of these tests to patients and be able to quantify some of the and give some objective data, quite frankly, to some of these empirical diagnoses that these patients have been getting for a long, long time. And we realized just as quickly that it's a very disenfranchised but empowered patient population, these patients with functional GI symptoms and diseases are ones that are very eager to find an answer, but many times they've been given an answer one time, two times, three times, and it's just not good enough because they feel the same as they did before they saw that provider or that third provider or fourth provider. So if we can do anything to get them answers early on in their care cycle, that's the ultimate intention. And we really saw an unmet need there and we saw a business case to get there with.
1: That's, that's fantastic. And I I completely agree. I think those patients are, uh, I mean, I love the terminology that you use, disenfranchised, 'cause because, you know, it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating for our uh, functional GI patients. It's it's frustrating for the physicians, I always say, and I can't even imagine how frustrating it is for the patients, because um, we, we know so little, and there is so little coordination, I would say, and, and you guys are working um, in that space and, and hopefully providing some of that.
2: Yeah, I would say, I apologize for interrupting, but just I, I would want to add there that, yeah, I mean, I, I myself personally have a, a history of GI disturbance, as do many of my family and close friends around me and many of our team members here at CDI. And yeah, I mean, I think I w- it's interesting because I was talking to a, a GI clinician, a, a practitioner here recently, and they, they used the phrase, I want to reclaim the F word when they were referring to functional GI patients, because many times this is a patient population that is altogether discarded, or at a minimum, disregarded. And, you know, even just from fellowship programs all the way up GI training and the like, the same practitioner was saying to me, look, You know, many times these patients with GI disturbances are not terminal. Whatever is bothering them is not necessarily going to kill them, but it's having a dramatic, negative, unfavorable effect on their quality of life. And just because it doesn't mean death imminently, it doesn't mean it shouldn't be taken very, very seriously. And we're trying our best at CDI just from an industry stakeholder perspective, understanding that we're not on the front lines and we're not in the exam rooms having these questions on a daily basis with patients, but we're having these conversations often enough with providers to know that we have a small part to play and try to message the importance behind trying to get answers to these patients as quickly as we nice. can.
1: Nice. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so it, it sounds like from what you're saying that you are very involved with physicians in the GI space, and, and you've been in the GI space for a reasonably long time now. Um, what do you feel like, you know, what are physicians' attitudes towards startup companies in GI? Do you feel like there is a lot of fear and hesitancy, or do you feel that they've been kind of embraceful and helpful? No,
2: it's a great question. I actually feel quite the opposite. I I actually uh, feel more encouraged and optimistic now about the level of collaboration between industry, academia, clinicians, practitioners, and the like um, than I ever have before. I think it's an important time now. I am a, a staunch believer that we're at the beginning of a critical paradigm shift. I I still refer to it as the beginning because I think many people think we're in the middle of it, but I don't. I think we're at the very beginning of a critical paradigm shift from this historical fee for service approach to healthcare to a value based approach. And I think that slowly but surely everybody is having to get to a place where they're putting that value care chain first above everything else. And that means digital integration. It means chronic care management, it means diagnostic as a service, it means understanding how to provide software as a service even um, to bring new technologies to market and no one institution or no one industry stakeholder is going to be able to do that on their own. Um, We have been in this this field now for the better part of, of 10 years. Byron, I would say there's nothing more important than being able to lean on industry partners, but far more importantly, academic, research institution and in market practitioners, you know, getting feedback from what's happening, what those interactions from the patients are is tremendously important. But, you know, we've seen tremendous success with a few of our businesses in licensing specific early stage technologies from academia and then being able to bring them to market in a really meaningful way commercially that they may not have been able to do on their own without some of the heavy lifting that we did to, to kind of get it there and put the commercial messaging around it. So everyone has their, their, their part to play. And I, I, Actually, I'm incredibly excited about uh, the level of collaboration that, that we're seeing here lately, and I, I think that's only going to continue. I'm excited to see what, what the ACG Congress brings. I, th- I think it's going to be a, a fun, high-energy time in Charlotte.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that your experience with GI physicians have been really good. I think that, you know, we should always strive to help patients together. Because at the end of the day, just like you said, the, some of the physicians are in the trenches, you know, dealing with patients every day, um, and you guys get a little bit of a, I think, different flavor um, of healthcare. And we need to work together in order to get our patients the best care that they need. So we talked about the interest of physicians in GI startup and, and looks like there is good interest in, on the side of physicians. But what about the side of investors? How much interest is there in GI and the GI space in general?
2: Yeah, I think it's a high interest time uh, for investors. I I think that uh, the secret is out. Private equity is, is very interested and invested in a GI uh, roll-up strategy and integrating as many services into uh, to those package deals as they, they possibly can. Um, and I understand the intent there. I think going back to this idea of a paradigm shift and a value-based care model, you want to be able to have a 360 degree window into any unique patient case, and you want to create feedback loops that are important and meaningful in real time in terms of their interaction capabilities. Um, so I think investment in this this category is high. I think you'll continue to see some of these, these roll up and private equity deals, but I think you'll start to see a lot more strategic transactions too, and I think companies will be willing to take a little bit more risk over these next couple of years now that we've uh, you know come out the other side of COVID successfully uh, or, or relatively, if you will, and, and people are kind of getting back to their their day jobs and focusing on what can we do to unlock further value for our products or our services. Um, I think there'll be a lot more consolidated investment and, and you'll see kind of um, some roll ups that are happening outside of just GI clinician practices and you'll see some some industry transactions too that are putting technologies first to get to the patient and get to the provider as quickly as we possibly can because these these feedback loops um, are the most important thing. It's what what we're talking about most frequently and and kind of our daily conversation as a management team at at CDI, you know, 15 minutes for a provider and a patient in an exam room just isn't enough anymore. And it's it's no longer practical to assume that that's a, a, a meaningful amount of time to get something accomplished. So, uh, you know, we want to help for all of those minutes outside of those
1: 15. Awesome. So it sounds like there is there is a, a good amount of interest on the side of investment in the GI space. And that's always great to hear because for those out there who are, you know, considering <laughs> starting a company or starting something new, maybe, I don't know how the fear of a recession may affect that at this time, but it seems like overall, this is a good time uh, to start. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the regulatory environment and how you guys have dealt with that at CDI. We talked a little bit before you and I about your involvement with with GI logic. And then we talked a little bit about your regulatory approach um, at CDI. And I know that they're very, very different. And I was wondering, you know, so first of all, what are the strategies on each side? What are the pros and cons of each approach? And then how do you decide the best strategy? Um, as, as a startup company?
2: Yeah, this is a fantastic question. So I think I'll, I'll probably start with CDI uh, first, our, our umbrella company, and then I'll, I'll talk about some of our technology investments and portfolio companies next. Um, but So CDI at the highest level, what we'd like to refer to our, our regulatory strategy as is a, a vertically integrated approach. So we're an ISO accredited manufacturer. We are manufacturing and distributing our test kits here from our headquarters in Salem. We're also an FDA registered distributor of these test kits. And we're a CLIA certified independent diagnostic laboratory. So everything we do is under the guise of, we essentially check the box of alphabet soup, if you will, to be able to manufacture, distribute, and analyze all of our own test kits under the guidance and quality assurance mechanisms that we have in place with very stringent quality management systems, work instruction, standard operating procedures and the like. And we're able to identify and put the right proper controls in place um, We're audited continuously biannually in many cases to ensure that there's nothing you know, out of order in how we're operating our business and having a continuity of care that providers and patients can always depend on. So that's a, the utmost and highest level of importance for everything we do in our clinical business. Um, branching out into some of our technology and, and software and product investments, I think um, we could start probably with, with GI Logic, which is a very company, uh, a very interesting company, I should say, um, out of the West Coast. Both of the technologies that CDI has invested in um, were initial uh, brain children, if you will, Dr. Brendan Spiegel at uh, Cedar sinai um, He founded a very interesting technology called AbStats, which uh, GI Logic, i sit on the board of CDI is uh, minority shareholder, and we made a, a significant investment in the the company, but uh, they have an FDA approval for a bedside application for post-operative alias. And they were able to get that application uh, submitted and, and approved very, very early on to try to get in hospital. And I think from there, they have uh, every intention and some very solid strategies in place to get to the clinic for other indications within the GI category. And I think eventually maybe many others from that, that standpoint as well. Um, Another technology, my total health. This is one that we're very, very interested in, and CDI has actually taken a, a majority position and management and oversight of this technology. And we're looking at this to really uh, fortify our strategy as a diagnostics as a service company. So, my total health proprietary app and website, my GI health. So, this was designed again by Brendan and Dr. Bill Shea at the University of Michigan to esteem GI clinicians and technology specialists, serves as a home base for GI sufferers across the country and really the world. But when you talk about the the regulatory aspect of it, so this is HIPAA compliant, it's API integrated, it takes a very stringent patient symptom history and report module that enables clinicians to more effectively communicate with their patients um, in advance of visits. So this is kind of born and bred out of the idea that 15 minutes just isn't enough for patients. So what Brennan and Bill were able to do is create a symptom intake survey called the EGIS survey. This is uh, the automated evaluation of GI symptom survey. And what that does, and this, there's published literature on this, is um, essentially more effectively intake a patient um, than any GI clinician would have in the same period of time. And then it is uh, automatically integrated with the provider EHR if they would like it to be on the back end. So when this patient presents at the GI provider's office, they're already in receipt of a very uh, solid and fundamental patient symptom survey history without the patient having to necessarily go through that front-end um, intake process upon arrival. So, uh, long-winded way of saying we have a few different strategic approaches to our regulatory um Planning and frameworks, depending on the on the business segment that, that we're operating out of, but we see them all kind of playing a part to the middle as a fully integrated approach.
1: Nice, and and how, how do you decide what's the best strategy for regulatory?
2: Great question. Um, so it, I I would say it depends on the life cycle of your business or your idea. Um, if it's an idea, then I think this is one of the most critical early stage decisions you can make if you really intend on trying to turn your idea into a business. Um, If you are operating in this segment and don't have a sound and formulated strategy prior to any sort of commercial launch most certainly, but even prior to prototype development, uh, study design or the like, you need to understand what your regulatory pathway is going to be because it determines and dictates all other things, time horizons, time to market for the product itself, study design and implementation enrollment times. This is hugely important and, you know, that can run away from you very, very quickly, and it can get very, very expensive. And all of a sudden, you know what you thought was twenty thousand dollars and two years becomes two hundred thousand and five, and and it can happen before you know it. So, um, if you don't know the right people in the right place to go with your regulatory strategy, then um, my advice anyway would be to try to find the right ones and consult with them first and try to at least get an understanding of what your options are before you just go with any one assumption. I think that that is potentially another common mistake for entrepreneurs early stage uh, in the healthcare space is they maybe assume there's there's only one pathway to go when uh, there could be a few and they they could be uh, just as valuable or just as detrimental t- depending on the decision you
1: make. I, I like that. Get a regulatory expert and, <laughs> and talk to them early on because... Yeah, it, it might save you a lot of a lot of pain. Um, all right, so it, let, let's talk a little bit about um, the services that CDI provides. I know you know your claim to fame has been um, home-based breath testing. Um, you do hydrogen methane for disorders like SIBO, carb malabsorption, but you're also doing other stuff and and you know you're dabbling with digital health, like you were just saying a, a little bit earlier on. So tell us a little bit about what the services that CDI provides.
2: Yeah, so I think in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is help providers identify, diagnose common sources of digestive distress, functional gastrointestinal ailments. We do that focused primarily on patient-centric principles. So everything we do is non-invasive, cost-effective, our portfolio of GI diagnostic products and solutions. Uh, We always intend to expedite treatment, create better patient outcomes, more robust cost savings for the entire healthcare delivery system at large. And we're trying to do that through a few specific product offerings. The first uh, you mentioned, Bara, and we uh, like to believe that we're a leader in uh, the field of hydrogen and methane breath testing. So our portfolio, again, of non-invasive tests is all um, able to be done at home. So we have Breath tests that will diagnose small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, intestinal methanogen overgrowth, carbohydrate malabsorption disorders, including uh, fructose intolerance, lactose intolerance, and sucrose intolerance. Uh, We also introduced a a blood test, a proprietary, uh, clinically validated blood test in 2015 called IBS Check that we have a a capillary collection kit for that was designed to help quickly and reliably diagnose diarrhea predominant or mixed symptom IBS. Um, IBS Check is available with direct patient access, we have simple, safe at home sample collection, free shipping, easy to understand results in just a few days, just uh, in the same way that we offer our breath testing portfolio. And then you also mentioned uh, our, our tech solution. So again, this is designed by industry leading experts, GI physicians, my GI health is cloud based patient focused healthcare application that enables patients to monitor and manage and really understand more fundamentally their symptoms, while enhancing hopefully the patient's relationship and communication with their integrated care team and create again a little bit of a 360 degree feedback loop and try to vertically integrate what we believe uh, the future holds which is a diagnostics as a service Model and a full robust suite of services. Uh, and then the final thing I would just mention is that we are very active in clinical trials. We provide reference laboratory services, as well as diagnostic solutions and trial coordination, as well as patient recruitment enrollment services for sponsors and, and CROs, principal investigators, and the like, and um, IRB and FDA phases one, two, and three, all the way to, to post market approval. Um, Most all of our services are covered by Medicare. We submit to uh, commercial payers as well, so we try to make the the process as cost effective to to patients as possible. Um, And we try to create a, a service to healthcare providers that puts them first as well. I think you know some of the value adds that I would mention is we have one day business turnaround time on all of our our test results. We have direct to patient or direct to practice shipping for all of our test kits. We have dedicated customer service and patient outreach team. We have result interpretation assistance for all of the results that we provide to our practicing clinicians. And all of this is at no cost or overhead to the practice. We're incurring you know, the front end costs associated with the uh, kit distribution and sample analysis and um, are trying to get results to patients and providers as, as quickly as we possibly can and use MyGI Health as a means to, to uh,
1: steward that communication. Craig, I, you answered three of my questions already. <laughs> that was a fantastic answer. <laughs> I, I tend to get winded when we talk about our business. I, I get excited. Yeah, no problem. So, um, so I'm a physician. I get you know a lot of patients with uh, bloating and whatnot, and I always consider breath testing. How do I order these tests?
2: comdxcom backslash order uh, would be the best, the best place to go. But um, no, I, I, I hear this a lot that uh, bloating is a uh, very um, high frequency and, and high quality complaint, quite frankly, from, from patients to GI clinicians all around the country. And I think starting with the SIBO breath test makes a ton of sense in those situations if um, some other things have been ruled out or if the patient case makes sense.
1: Great. So I order it through the company's website,
2: through the company's website. Yeah. All of our tests can be comdx.com. C O M M D X.com.
1: We'll add it to the, to the description um, of uh, this episode. And then you mentioned that Medicare covers it. It does. We are
2: uh, a network provider for Medicare. And um, that's something that uh, we're, we're very proud of and, and something that we encourage our, our healthcare practitioners to, to take advantage of. They can have full confidence that any of their Medicare, patients will be fully covered if they want to order a breath test through CDI.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. And then, you know, we talked about from a physician standpoint, you order it through going through um, that link. But from a patient standpoint, say that you receive one of these kits in the mail, um, what, what, what would you expect to find? Wonderful question.
2: Um, so uh, at the origin of the, the uh, test order, we will capture that on the back end. Our procurement team We'll then source that test kit, and depending uh, on where the provider wants the kit to go, we will either send it direct to the provider's office for them to walk through and distribute the test kit directly to the patient, or we will drop ship the the, uh, test kit directly to the patient's home. Uh, Many times, it's the latter option for both the provider and the patient. They would rather take this test in the comfort of their own home. But when they receive the test kit, um, they'll open it up. They'll find some instructions for use, depending on which test it is. If it's a SIBO breath test, they'll find 10 individual test uh, specimen collection tubes and a uh, collection straw as well as a substrate depending on what the provider has uh, requested that we distribute in that kit it would either be a glucose substrate or a lactulose substrate for the SIBO breath test or the intestinal methane overgrowth breath test. Um, and of course if it's a lactose malabsorption, a fructose malabsorption, or sucrose, it would be either one of those substrates included in that test kit. Um, the patient and there would also be uh, most important to mention, I should say, is a, a prepaid shipping label included in that test kit as well. Um, the patient would then follow our instructions to use, but they can also go directly to our website, again, which is comdx.com C O mmdx.com, And they can find tutorial videos that will walk them through from beginning to end in sequential fashion, how to administer the breath test, but it also gives some additional guidance on the prep uh, preparation period, the fasting, uh, what specific diets might make the most sense to uh, apply for the 12 hours leading up to the test to try to sterilize the gut. Um, as best they possibly can. And then they will uh, administer the test over again, depending on whether it's a malabsorption test or a a SIBO test, a a two or three hour period. They'll then package those samples back up in some bubble wrap uh, plastic that we also provide in that sample test kit. They'll put it right back in that same box that the uh, samples or the test tubes arrived in. They'll apply that prepaid shipping label right over the, the top of the same box. That acts as a little bit of a chain of custody, because if ever that's able, that uh, label was teared or tampered with upon arrival, we would know that and certainly reach out to the the provider or patient, that's a very rare circumstance. Um, But we have a a chain of custody and a lab requisition that would accompany those samples. And they can then uh, do a couple of different things. They can either bring it to UPS Dropbox uh, in their neighborhood, they can bring it to a a local UPS location, they can call CDI and we'll schedule a pickup at their home through UPS. Or if they see a UPS driver, they can simply hand them that test kit and it will arrive back to our lab uh, within two to three days time and we analyze and report those sample results back to the ordering provider within 24 hours of the time that, that we receive it. So every uh, patient can assume that within a week's time at most, their provider will have the results of the samples that they
1: collected uh, the week immediately prior. That's awesome, it, it, it's quite comprehensive. Is there a hotline that patients can uh, call if they have questions or if something you know unusual happens or something like that? I'm sorry Bart, did you say a phone, a phone number that they can call? Yeah, like a hotline that, you know, they can call if they have any questions or something happens while they're prepping for the test or something like that.
2: Oh, absolutely. In fact, we, we encourage it. So our customer service team is, is um, highly trained, highly quali- uh, quality and, and uh, highly capable. So our, our number to our customer service team is 888-258-5966. And they can also be reached by email anytime to bar. So that's uh, customer service, all one word, customer service at comdx.com, C-O-M-M-D-X.com. And yeah, we would love to hear from
1: you. Wonderful, wonderful. All right, so I have a technical question, um, and and that's basically about how stable are the gases that we're analyzing? So hydrogen and methane, how stable are these within those containers? Um, And does it matter, for example, that they travel in a UPS truck that's um, at a temperature of 108, for example, or something like that.
2: No, so this is a fantastic question. Yeah, no, and going back to our highly regulated environment, in fact, we have uh, a lot of analysis behind this and, and actually going back to um, some earlier concepts in this this conversation, um, our reliance on academia to help to clinically validate a lot of the services that we're offering. Um, we were very fortunate to have worked with an academic partner very early on in our process to validate the inter- intraday interday transport any damage to the septa uh extreme cold and hot temperatures we've left these tubes outside for extended periods of time we've run um every analysis under the sun and um thankfully you know we we are uh marketing that it is uh, essentially a month's expiration from the time of sample transport that we would no longer consider the the test result to be a viable one clinically, um, and we would never report it back to the provider after a month's timeframe. It's very rare um, that it takes samples that amount of time to reach us. But um, that is an internal cutoff that we've identified as a management team and uh, implemented in our quality management system. And again, because we're highly regulated, we're audited on those standards on an annual basis. Um, But we're also running a CO2 correction factor on every uh, sample that we analyze too, which is tremendously important for the quality assurance um, of any breath sample that you're analyzing to ensure that this really is uh, an alveolar breath sample that was excreted from the human lung cavity and there was no atmospheric dilution that crept its way in or otherwise uh, jeopardized the integrity of the sample during transport so if ever we get a read that is too high or low on the co2 of any sample that we're analyzing that is a red flag immediately we will star that sample on the report and depending on how many of those samples per report um we are having to star, if you will. Um, we will either determine that result to be entirely invalid and reach out to the provider to determine accordingly Um, whether they'd like to retest that patient or what course of action they would they would like to take. Um, If it's one sample on a test result of of 10, let's say, then we uh, many times will report that sample and let the provider again at their discretion determine uh, if they'd like to retest that patient. And we will always do that complimentary to the provider and the patient if they are requesting a retest. Um, So it's a great it's a great question. um, And I think it's uh, a tremendously important quality assurance standard to make sure that any breath-based clinical diagnostics business in the space um, is, is integrating into their service model. All
1: right, so I'm gonna ask you a, a tough question now. <laughs> so whenever we talk about breath testing, okay. I, I think physicians are always um, skeptical because when you look at the sensitivity and specificity ranges, they're you know absolutely horrendous. You're talking about somewhere like 20 to 90% and it's really not very clear um, how, how sensitive or how specific these tests are. And, you know, that breeds a lot of reluctance yeah. on, on a physician's sides to order them. So how does, first of all, how, how does your test, uh, compare to in-office testing? And then what are your thoughts about this particular issue, the sensitivity and specificity of breath test?
2: Yeah. So I think, um, I, you know, on the, on the sensitivity and specificity of, of breath testing, this is, uh, something that needs further consensus there's no doubt about that uh, we were instrumental in bringing some of that consensus to the middle in 2015 we convened a, a group of 12 or 13 thought leaders from uh, all around the world to uh, develop and ultimately publish the north american consensus on breath testing and since that time uh, acg and, and aga have also been very helpful in, in publishing um, some guidelines and, and um, Direct literature on SIBO and hydrogen methane breath testing and its application, uh, categorizing intestinal methane overgrowth as uh, another early indicator and something that uh, breath testing can be an applicable means to identify. Um, but I, you know, we are the first to say that this test is not for every patient. It's it's for a very specific sub segment of a sub segment of patients and. Um, Whenever I get this question about breath testing and its clinical application, um, knowing that many people think the jury is still out, um, I never tried to argue it from a clinical perspective. Quite frankly, I start with the patient first and I go back to that journey of five to six different doctors, five to six years on average to get diagnosed empirically with IBS. This you know, it means they've spent countless time, years, dollars on over-the-counter medications, maybe two or three different prescribed medications. Who knows what their clinical care conundrum has has looked like? But um, kind of, I guess, ending maybe where I I started the call with of, of this being a disenfranchised patient population who doesn't have a lot of objective data to go on in the first place. Being able to provide some level of objectivity or diagnosis to a category that has otherwise had so much heterogeneity embedded without I think is tremendously important in the first place. So I think breath testing has its place uh, clinically for for patients, whether or not uh, providers are actively integrating that as a standard of care for their clinical workup when a functional GI patient presents um, is a whole other challenge, and, and we at CDI um, are actively trying to be proponents of, um, the, the fact that they should, and, and, and we believe that we're doing that on behalf of, of patients, uh, first and, and foremost.
1: Nice. And, and how does, um, your test compare in terms of sensitivity and specificity compared to office-based tests?
2: Well, so there's a few different uh, ways I think that I can answer this question. So um, first of all, we work with, with one of the premier medical device manufacturers in the country really world in Agilent technologies to have developed a proprietary instrumentation split column gas chromatograph as flame ionization detector as well as thermal conductivity detectors. I think many in-office breath testing applications are point of care based, they could be electromagnetic, they might not even be uh, GC application based. So first and foremost, you want to understand what technology you're actually analyzing the breath on and is there any opportunity for atmospheric dilution or other background noise or interference that is jeopardizing the integrity of that sample. Um, so that's kind of the, the clinical differentiation. Uh, in terms of levels of sensitivity and specificity, um, I'm not sure I can speak directly to any direct comparison between in-office breath testing and, and um, the level of, of uh specificity or sensitivity that that we're doing, but I can say that as a practical matter, we are able to get these tests to and from patients a lot faster than the in-office historical means of doing so. Just in my conversations anecdotally with providers around the country, they're telling that there's six or seven month wait times just to get a patient a breath test in the first place. So um, I think we compare in a very valuable way to the idea that if you want your patient to have A breath test and you want to know what that result looks like as quickly as possible then you can order one through our website and we can have that result to you in a week's time
1: that's absolutely essential the you know the wait time is is an absolutely essential point so let's talk a little bit about the potential of this um what do you see the potential of these home-based tests in the future both from an investigational standpoint as well as from a clinical standpoint
2: So I think there's a huge opportunity here, and I actually think that COVID was uh, a boon to our service-based model, if you will. Um, I think that diagnostics as a service may be one of the most important opportunities in digital health um, and really in healthcare moving forward. Um, So often underappreciated, but lab tests inform about 70% of today's medical decisions in many circumstances. In fact, there's some of the best tools available to identify health risks, pinpoint diagnoses, plan treatments, monitor conditions over time. But compared to many other segments of healthcare, lab testing, industrial complex, it's received a disproportionately less investment level of attention, um, primarily causing it to kind of fall markedly behind the digitization, consumeration initiatives. Um, I think that that's coming back. The problem with the existing paradigm is that, you know, it, it's, too big and too important to ignore how valuable it is to meet the patient where they are more investment is inevitably going to flow into things like digital infrastructure enabling tech and up leveling diagnostic care journeys and therefore just fortifying the clinical workflow and that's without even touching the direct access testing market you know where a patient can order a lab test directly without a physician to order in many circumstances, that's huge and growing. Um, so as new players enter the space, I think it's only going to shine uh, a brighter light on the idea that many patients can get access to uh, clinical decision-making making mechanisms without necessarily having to visit a brick and mortar location in order to do so. And we'd like to believe that we're kind of uh, out ahead of that, that trend, if you will, and, and trying to, uh, to ride that way
1: that's that's incredible and i mean i do agree with you i think the decentralization of of testing is is essential and it's the way the future things are going to move in that direction anyway um i think one thing that that i would like to see is a little bit of coordination cuz You know, decentralization of testing will result in a massive amount of data, but if that data is not controlled in a certain way or collected in a certain way on the industry side, then, you know, your R&D departments as well as your academic physicians who are hoping to use that data for research to come up with something useful out of it it's really difficult if there isn't any type of standard standardization. And I think that you guys are doing that very well. I mean, you, you mentioned that you're working with ACG and AGA as well as, I, I've read those um, North American uh, guidelines for breath testing and, and they're really, um, really great. And so it's, I think it's really important to kind of emphasize that as we move forward with this process of um, making testing available to patients directly. Yeah.
2: I think you hit the nail on the the head bar. I appreciate that. I mean, there's a few issues that we're facing today. Things like access and inclusivity. I mean, many labs aren't able to compete and get to patients just because of the population that they're operating in, the experience, the end-to-end patient experience is leagues below what consumers have come to expect. I mean, especially since the onset of COVID and rise of more digital and virtual options to meet patients where they are, get them what they want when they wait, they want them. It's, it's a common experience as a consumer, but in healthcare, it's starting to reach that same level of expectation. And if service centers are closing midday, it's almost the expectation that you can go somewhere else online to get the service that you're out there that day. So um, we want to be kind of out ahead of that. And I think you know transparency is, is tremendously important these days and times too, patients are coming to expect the same level of transparency with their health as they are when they order a package from amazon or you know a, a meal from grubhub they want to kind of know what's happening in, in real time and how quickly they're going to get to the end result so um you know trying to to kind of integrate both the provider and the patient experience and and to your point completely uh create a higher level of coordination between everyone involved is of the utmost importance
1: wonderful my next question is about how somebody in the industry views physicians so you know thinking about cdi i could i could potentially view you looking at physicians as either partners or even customers because they can order these tests for their patients but also maybe even as competitors because a lot of physicians will elect for example when we talk about breath testing to treat Sibo, for example, as a, using treatment as a diagnostic diagnostic method. And so, yeah. how do you view physicians?
2: Absolutely, one hundred percent as partners, never as competitors. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I I only uh, appreciate and have the utmost respect for all of our provider physician partners. Um, I, you know, I I will say this: I I learned a ten a ton from early physician. Mentors, but um, I also learned very, very early on, Bar, that it it's a very unique space that we operate in, where everyone is trying to service the end consumer, who is the patient, right? But in order to do so, we have to ensure that the provider understands, on a very fundamental level, the value of the service or the product that we're trying to get to that patient, because without their endorsement. We are never going to be able to sell our product or provide our service, although they're not the end user, the patient is. So it's, you know, it's it, to a certain degree, any industry stakeholder can build a commercial sales team if they want to. But that message is only as good as the delivery to the provider who ultimately is going to deliver it to the patient. So um, I don't see any other way than to view our physician partners through the lens of them being just that partners. And uh, look, I have partners who disagree with me. tongue you know i i one of our highest volume uh, provider partners in, in north carolina tells me all the time i i disagree with what your breath test says because i have some other clinical indications with this patient who i've been treating for, for the past five years and i'm going to go in this direction and we say absolutely that makes a ton of sense because we're Never, ever going to sit in a position and say that we're dictating treatment plans or providing fundamental diagnosis to these patients. The healthcare provider is doing that, and everything that we do, we view as supplemental to the discretion of what that healthcare provider determines the best course of action is for that patient. So um, there is there is no other lens, in my opinion, to look at uh, our healthcare provider partners through other than than just that partners, 100% through and through.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. How can physicians then be more involved?
2: Oh, I would love that, quite, quite honestly. Um, and and I like to think that CDI has done a really, really good job um, of of building a network of provider partners, um, both at a, a key opinion leader and institutional level, but also at a community level. You know, we view uh, providers in the rural parts of the state in Des Moines, Iowa, who have a very robust patient population are seeing just as many patients as any number of folks on either coast um, are are just as important. Many times that's where you get the best feedback because they're seeing, you know, many more patients who sometimes have uh, a a lot more interesting cases and are trying to figure out a lot more things. So um, we're trying to talk to everybody as often as we possibly can. I think we've done a good job of building a, a network of provider partners, and we're starting to put some some content out there online and, and through our social that um, is is starting to kind of publicize or socialize uh, some of those communications a little bit more because I I do think that um, you know our our provider partners look to us to send some some messaging to the world, and we look to them to to help us curate the message that we want to provide for patients to understand how valuable the services that that um, they might be able to gain access to through what we're doing here. So. It's uh, it's, it's all push and pull and it's all tremendously important.
1: Wonderful. All right. I think we're almost running out of time. I think I'll have a different interview with you maybe later to talk about the uh, digital health uh, component that, that you guys are adding. Uh, But in the meantime, what questions would you have for me or for physicians in general? Oh, that's a great question.
2: Um, I, you know, I think the, the, the one that comes to mind anyway, I, I, I probably could take up a lot more time with a lot more questions um but i think the one that that comes to mind is how how do we start to uh earlier on in the process from just a a gi training even and fellowship uh perspective and in a a more uh, uh fundamental way look at the functional category of gi patients to begin a reducing the stigma and B, putting a level of focus around it that um, might start to yield some more clear indicators for outcome. You know, I was having a conversation um, with a a GI clinician again recently who who, they just published a study that said that it was almost 70% of GI fellows like weren't taking functional GI patients seriously. Like if it wasn't IBD, you know, if it wasn't Crohn's, if it wasn't UC, if they weren't able to directly say this is celiac, it was like oh, you know, they're in this other category, right? And, um, you know, for me, that category is the one that we're trying to get to every single day and say, like, you're really important and we want to figure out how to get you some answers too because yes, it might not be terminal. And yes, maybe, you know, there was no inflammation or blockage on a scope, but you still really don't feel well. And it's important for, you know, you not to be totally discarded or disregarded too. And I am in no way, shape or form saying that that is what uh, all practicing clinicians are, are doing. But I'm just saying, you know, do you have any thoughts, Bar? Maybe on on um, you know how do we embed that in GI training a little bit better, maybe than we're currently doing?
1: Absolutely, thank you. I think that's a wonderful question. Um, and to be honest, it's it's a very tough thing because I think, let me put it this way: um, physicians, particularly in training, um, are usually focusing their times on things that they can learn that are very specific because you absolutely need to learn a set of skills in your training um, and you don't really have a lot of time to contemplate about things that we may not fully understand yet, but that can be changed. Um, And I think probably the best way to get physicians in training to take functional GI disorders more seriously and to pay more attention to them and to pay more attention to the patients and to train to pay more attention to these patients is if you have a specific functional GI um, disorders clinic where you're not seeing other patients in the same time, and you don't have only 15 minutes with the patient, you actually have more time to, to talk with the patient, and you are seeing only patients with, say, IBS or patients with functional GI disorders with somebody who is specialized in that field and that someone can actually give you the information that, that you may not get to on your own or that is not really listed in GI textbooks or, or GI study materials that the fellows um, usually go after. I think that that would be very helpful. And we do it, we do it for IBD, for example. We have specialized clinics for these patients and that teaches us to pay more attention to them, to learn more about them. And the access to IBD specialists um, actually really helps out in understanding these disorders more. So I think that's one of the things that we can do. But in addition, I think that there is a general trend, particularly in digital health in the GI space, where it is very well focused on IBS and functional disorders, And it also gives access to certain things that are not readily available in all GI programs, like having a GI psychologist, for example, on a team interacting with a GI psychologist. And I think these things will have better role over time. I think that maybe in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see things change in a more uh, positive direction or in a better direction. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. I, I heard that's fantastic. And I appreciate it. And I heard, uh, Bill Shea at the University of Michigan say recently when he was just describing kind of the multidisciplinary approach to managing IBS and the functional GI category at large, he said this this just needs to be a team sport. There's no other way around it. You know, this biopsychosocial approach and having dietitians, nutritionists, psychologists on staff to help kind of create an integrated approach to the functional GI case. Uh, I think that's that's hopefully the way the, the world is is working and going
1: all right craig um thank you so much for being with us on the show today i I really enjoyed this conversation and i hope to get you again on the show in the future
2: no likewise i really appreciate it bar i think this is a, a wonderful thing that that you're doing to to shine a light on on these categories for industry stakeholders i really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today thank you
0: that concludes this episode of the gi startup podcast hope you all enjoyed it and thank you for listening Please don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review as it helps us create additional content. Thanks.